the hypothesis that I'm testing here is called fluctuating selection, which means that maybe this one allele is better in this time and place, but another one would be better in another time and place. So it's mm -hmm. sort of the most complex of the three. Um, and it's very different, difficult to empirically test in a natural system. So basically what I'm seeing is if there are differences in the alleles we're seeing within the MHC across space and time on this tiny little island over a span of 15 years and kind of aligning that with parasite prevalence to see if we can link those variations to variations in levels of malaria, basically infection. Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. friends, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. I am your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. I am very excited for this week's guest, like I say every week, because I wouldn't have a guest on who I wasn't excited about. So before we talk about tonight's guest, um, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who supports me on the Patreon and everyone who just supports the podcast in general. You guys are the ones who keep me going and you've really made this an incredible experience to to, to do. And, and I'm grateful to be able to bring this content to you. Um, last week, we talked with Dr. Emily Taylor, who is a phenomenal woman in science. And I'm so excited that this week we get to speak with another biologist. So this week, we're going to be talking with Gina Zwicky, um, who is a conservation biologist, and then also a private herb keeper. And I'm, we're going to talk about the interactions between those, and then also just all the cool shit she gets to do. So welcome, Gina. Hi, thank you again so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. Thank you. Gina, we haven't officially met, you know, but we've talked on Twitter a few times. And the reason I first started following you is because I was kind of starting to get into the SciComm community on Twitter, even though I'm not really a scientist myself. And you tweeted that you had a green tree python. And that is my end-all be-all animal. I just love them to death. So tell me a little bit about your personal collection, and then we'll talk a little bit more about who you are in general. Sure. So I love arboreal snakes. I really appreciate the value of an animal that's very hands-off, you know, with whom you have the particular relationship of I'm here to feed you, provide you with mm -hmm. an environment, and, and leave you alone mostly. I yes. think it's <laughs> a unique and really valuable experience to have with a, a pet. So Holly is my green tree python. She's in our locality, you know, in, in the hobby, quote unquote, nothing special. She's special to me. You know, I love her. Okay, but, all know. green trees are special. Like, yeah, exactly. let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> but yeah, um, my personal collection is not very, again, quote unquote, high end. I have a garden phase Amazon tree boa named Thistle. I have a ball python. I have a sulcata tortoise, a couple of fish. That's about it. Um, I know a lot of people are more comfortable with very large collections, but I prefer to keep mine on the smaller side and really focus on individual husbandry and enrichment for just a few animals. So that's mm -hmm. just how I like to do it. I'm really attached to all my individual pets. They're very cute and adorable and I love them. So that's them. Yeah. And I love your collection. And, and I think also part of the reason I was drawn to you is because of the, uh, you do really good um, terrarium setups because you're very much into plants. Do you have bioactive setups for your animals? Are you working with more basic husbandry? So I don't do bioactive in that I don't have, you know, like cleaner 
invertebrates in the set of mm -hmm. cups. Mm -hmm. I have more naturalistic. So I have, you know, a cocoa fiber bottom, some plants, uh, both plants that actually grow in the substrate and ones that are removable. So what I like to do is keep it simple enough that it's easy to clean, but kind of in involved enough that it's still enriching. So I don't go full bioactive. I have sort of a happy medium kind of approach to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. I think I'm, I'm trying to move my husbandry towards that direction because I feel like it's more appealing for me as a keeper than, but also the animals as well, obviously depending on animal to animal, but yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people are really appealed by the idea of a bioactive setup and don't understand how much upkeep it actually is for something that builds itself as, you know, less upkeep. So mm -hmm. just, you know, not really my wheelhouse, but no shade to anybody who chooses to go that way for sure. Do you have any interest in keeping isopods as pets or similar? You know, I actually had some isopods for just like a very brief moment. I had a friend who just had some extra and sent me some and the colony crashed overnight for reasons I could not discern. And I was very sad because they're very cute, you know, so mm -hmm. I'll try it again someday. I'm sure I like isopods a lot, but given that I had that bad experience, I was like not super into putting them into my larger animal enclosures till I sort of get a better feel on what went wrong with that first time. Yeah, I definitely noticed that with my isopod colonies, I've got three right now. I have powder oranges, powder blues, and Dalmatians, um, that these are the three colonies I've been able to keep alive because they are the colonies I forget about. Like the <laughs> other ones I was like anal about, like making sure I was misting every day or checking mm -hmm. on them all the time. And these are the ones that I'm kind of like, I throw food in and I'm like, oh, I should take that out a couple of days later. And they seem to be doing really well with that. So I'm trying the hands-off approach to them a little bit more. That makes a lot of sense because that's also where I go wrong with plants. Like I really do very well with plants that involve or that are, have very involved upkeep. I do horribly with stuff like cacti and succulents and stuff where it's just like the, the point is to just leave it alone. I'm, I'm so bad at that. I need it to need yeah. me, you know? Like, yeah. Yes. So it's probably I, I, a similar kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a funny way of saying it. You need it to need you. Yeah. That mm -hmm. makes sense. It's kind of probably why I gravitate towards cats too. Cause exactly. I feel like, like she looks at me like, are you going to open the can of food? And like, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Gina, like I mentioned when we first, uh, I did my first introduction, but you are a conservation biologist. Is that correct? Yes. In a, a broader term, I think that most people in biology would probably specialize themselves a little bit beyond that, but you know, there's a million different subfields within conservation biology, and that's definitely an appropriate umbrella under which I fit. Okay. And you um, specifically, are you, do you consider yourself a herpetologist or just a herp enthusiast? So typically what I would consider a herpetologist is somebody whose project or study area wouldn't be the same if you weren't using a herp system. And that's not necessarily the case for my project. So I don't consider mm -hmm. myself a herpetologist. What I do is under the broader umbrella of molecular biology, molecular ecology, conservation genetics, but it would be the same sort of project if I was using, you know, an avian system, a fish system. So mm -hmm. I'm a herp enthusiast. Uh, uh, if somebody at like a, an expo was giving me shit, I would call myself a herpetologist just to flex, but I'm not, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm okay. Not I'm not. And I think that's a good a time transition into what are you studying? Because you sent me like an email that was like, hey, this is what I study. And I was like, oh, yes, I understood all of that completely. I did not. Um, so tell me a little bit more about your uh, <laughs> your study and, and what you're specifically doing. 
Sure. Well, just to qualify, I do that myself every day when I like open my computer. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, God, like, I don't even know. (laughs) So basically the project that I'm working on is investigating host parasite co-evolution between a species of anole called the Sabin anole, Anolis sabanus, and Plasmodium, which is the genus that encompasses a lot of malarial parasites. Mm -hmm. So host parasite co-evolution is really, really interesting in that it can cause really rapid genetic adaptation in both the host and the parasite. Mm -hmm. So basically what I'm studying is that adaptation at the molecular level within the region of the vertebrate immune system that specifically deals with immune responses. Mm -hmm. So there's a gene family called the major histocompatibility complex, which is actually the most diverse gene region in vertebrates that we know of. So there's a lot going on there, Um, immense, immense amount of diversity to study. And basically what I'm looking for is shifts in allele frequencies over time and space that can be sort of linked back to variations in parasite pressure. And by parasite pressure, I mean just how common is malaria at a given time in a given site, um, stuff like that. So it's a very complex system which is made a little bit simpler by us working on a species like Anola sabanus, which is endemic to a really tiny island in the Lesser mm-hmm. Antilles. The island we're looking at is about 13 square kilometers, which is about five square miles. Like it's really tiny. Right. And it's a single volcanic peak. This lizard species is only found on this island. So when we're working with such a complex problem, it's good to eliminate as many sources of confounding variables as we can. You know, like there's no gene flow from other areas because it's, you know, only found on this one island. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of other native reptile species. So the transmission dynamics are sort of simplified. And I did a horrible job of making this like <laughs> less complicated. No, you did great. Cause I like it when you kind of explain things um, in scientific terms, because it lets me ask a lot of questions because sure. I think this is so interesting. So um, let's start like at the beginning of what I don't understand about what you just said. So we're going to go back to the really beginning. Sure. You said you are uh, specifically focusing on malaria. I thought mm-hmm. malaria only affected mammals. Is that incorrect? So yes, malaria is actually really common in birds and reptiles. Really? I did yes, not know and- that. Is it the same strain that uh, harms humans? So it's not. There are a lot of different parasites in this general kind of group. Uh, They're called hemosporidian parasites, but Mm -hmm. the genus Plasmodium is, you know, a large malarial genus. Mm -hmm. So the three species I work with are called Plasmodium floridense or floridensi. I don't, I don't know how to say it, whatever. It's (laughs) it's a word. Uh, Plasmodium azurophyllum and Plasmodium leucocytica, which are the three species that are common in anoles in the Caribbean. Malaria is widespread in birds, reptiles, mammals. It's pretty much, uh, you know, cosmopolitan tropical disease. Okay. That's very interesting. So when you're talking about, um, it being spread within anoles and with these three, three species, essentially of malaria, are they species or is it like a string? They're species. Yeah. Because it's a parasite, you would refer to them as species. Okay. Within these three species of malaria, are you, are they being transmitted via mosquitoes like they would for humans or or other mammals? Yes, they are. So Hemospiridian parasites are transmitted by what are called hematophagous insects, uh, insects, uh, hematophagous meaning just blood eating. So not just mosquitoes, but mostly mosquitoes. Yeah. Okay. That is so fascinating. I guess mm-hmm. 
I think, you know, I very much am in that little human bubble of, of thinking only in terms of what affects me, but damn, I never knew you could get <laughs> a lizard could get malaria. Do their bodies react similarly to how human bodies react to that parasite? So there's a broad range of responses that you can see in individuals that are infected. Some of them mm-hmm. basically just have the plasmodium inside their bodies and don't really show any symptoms. But in mm-hmm. some of them, you'll see lethargy, loss of body condition, um, loss of energy, stuff like that. So there are a lot of really interesting infection dynamics going on in the system that we haven't fully teased out. But but yeah, so all this all to say that no two lizards might respond identically. And we don't really know exactly why in all cases lizards are responding differently. So with this specific species, the Anolis sabanus that you are studying, are they a oviparous species? They are, yes. So I, I'm assuming the malaria cannot be passed along to the young. I don't think so, no, because it is a blood parasite. It has like a liver phase and a blood phase. Mm-hmm. And I can't say that I know that much about like vitilogenesis in anoles, but uh, I'm pretty sure that those are, you know, separate physiological processes. I don't think it can be passed on through eggs. That's okay, a good question. Very cool. Very cool. So last week I spoke with Dr. Emily Taylor, like I mentioned, and her research primarily revolves around rattlesnakes, um, which is convenient because she can go to the rattlesnake site and, you know, do visual observations of these animals with an animal that is so isolated from other areas. Are you getting the opportunity to travel and research in situ or is it all ex situ? when you are doing your research? So that's a good question. I was totally supposed to go, but of course, COVID screwed everything of course, up. And, right. you know, so I'm working right now with a data set that's been collected over nearly 20 years by other researchers through the American Museum of Natural History primarily. And what mm-hmm. we have are blood samples. So they take what's called a blood dot where they clip the lizard's toe in a sterile process, you know, that minimizes harm to the animal, get a little mm-hmm. dot on a piece of paper and then just store that as the sample. And then we macerate that little sliver of blood in a tube to extract the DNA. Then I can work with the DNA for all sorts of things. So it is ex situ research for me, sadly. So I have to make my own field work just by, you know, goofing around in Louisiana. So Yeah, which, I mean, it sounds like you have a very good time when you goof around mm-hmm. because you're definitely learning a lot. <laughs> for sure. So, um, so when you talk about how you're really interested in how these parasites are evolving, can you give any insight on what year you were hypothesizing and what you're currently seeing with your data? Sure. So in the general concept of host parasite coevolution and predator prey adaptations, there's this thing called the red queen hypothesis, which mm-hmm. basically is a reference to the Alice in Wonderland line referring to the red queen, where it says it takes all the running you can do just to stay in the same place. So basically that's referring to how say a predator evolves some specific adaptation that makes it a better predator, you know, it gets a little Mm -hmm. bit faster, then the prey will just evolve to be just that much faster. And it can be all sorts of more complex traits like, you know, anti-predator defense mechanisms. Um, So you get all these sorts of really spectacular adaptations like you know the bombardier beetle that like shoots acid out of its butt and like i'm sorry stuff like that what? <laughs> okay, wait, so there's this thing called wait a- let's back up yeah, okay let's, let's back that up there's this thing called the bombardier beetle which i believe it's acetic acid so basically vinegar i i think um but it shoots it out of its butt as like literally just a spraying acid in the face of predators 
but you don't evolve that for no reason, right? You evolve it because yeah. your predator has like, you know, has some adaptation that makes it a good enough predator that you need to do something like that. So mm-hmm. the basic wow. point being that predator and prey and host and parasite are constantly opposing forces that cause the other to evolve ever more complex and ever more sophisticated mechanisms to resist the other. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. Yes, yes. So I'm studying that just at the molecular level. And there are three main hypotheses about why this family of genes, the major histocompatibility complex, is so diverse. And so really fast, let's pause for a second. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Major 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 histo say that again, what that was. Major histocompatibility complex. You can call it the MHC. The words themselves don't really matter. MHC. Okay. Yeah. So can you explain what the MHC is a little bit more? Sure. So it's a pretty large multi-gene family that deals with immune responses in vertebrates. So jawed vertebrates specifically. But basically what it does is control the recognition of foreign particles in the body. So This is a little more complex, I think, than, than it needs to get for the, the general question that we're asking. But basically what we want to know is why it's so diverse, because it's way, 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 way more diverse than, you know, most other gene regions. And so we can assume that there's a reason for that, right? Like there's mm-hmm. not usually no reason for these kinds of things that you'll see in the genome. So one of the reasons that we could assume that this would be super diverse is because if you have a ton of different alleles, allele being a variant of a gene within mm-hmm. the region that you know is controlling immune responses, that means you could respond to a ton of different parasite offenses. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like every allele you could think of as a weapon in your arsenal. Mm-hmm. So that's just the you know general heterozygosity hypothesis, assuming mm-hmm. that just the more genes you have, the better you are at resisting the parasite. Okay, so that's that one hypothesis. Sense. Okay. And then the other one is called the rare allele hypothesis, which basically mm-hmm. just says the more you have, the more likely you are to have a really rare one that parasites have never quote unquote seen before. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what the fuck's that? You know, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, and then the hypothesis that I'm testing here is called fluctuating selection, which means that maybe this one allele is better in this time and place, but another one would be better in another time and place. So it's sort mm-hmm. of the most complex of the three, um, and it's very different, difficult to empirically test in a natural system. So basically what I'm seeing is if there are differences in the alleles we're seeing within the MHC across space and time on this tiny little island over a span of 15 years, and kind of aligning that with parasite prevalence to see if we can link those variations to variations in levels of malaria, basically, infection. So. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty complicated system. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a nutshell, but yeah. I, I like it. I'm still confused, um, but in oh, a so good I, way. Like in a way that I have things I need to Google. I don't know why. <laughs> I keep talking, and all I can think about is do you remember that, like, <laughs> that movie Osmosis Jones? Yes. Oh, yes. I that think is, about that all the time. <laughs> that's all I can picture. One of my friends had to reschedule his wedding in the, because of COVID, and he mm-hmm. sent out like a new save the date, and it was Osmosis Jones. And so, whenever people talk about like anything having to do with like cells or DNA or genes or whatever, that's all I can imagine. So, mm-hmm. that's that how scientific work, I am. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Or the mitochondria is a powerhouse of the cell, all that good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, 
is there anything that you're noticing that you weren't expecting to see when you're doing this research? Like in my head, I would be curious if you're noticing that there's any specific traits or blood types within the, the specific anole that you're studying that seems to be less um, reactive to malaria or less likely to contract it. So that's a great question. We're actually just getting the sequence data back. So we haven't really examined okay. any of this in depth so far. What mm -hmm. we have back so far is just results of which lizards have malaria and which don't within our mm -hmm. study sample. There's a PCR test we can do to determine that pretty easily. And then we also have a data set of what's called neutral genetic variation. Mm -hmm. So there are genes called microsatellites that are basically, you know, somebody's gonna get after me for saying it like this, but they're like junk DNA, you know? They don't code for anything that we know of, and they sort mm -hmm. of just float around in the genome. But what that's good for is you can use it to test like gene flow and relatedness between different populations because there's no other forces acting on them other than randomness. So if two individuals have the same genotype at this junk locus, you can assume they're probably related mm -hmm. instead of that, you know, they've both got this genotype randomly because of chance. So it's useful for sort of informing the whole picture, mm -hmm. but doesn't mean all that much before we get the MHC data back. So I'll get back to you on that. We don't really okay. have results yet, but it's exciting no, that's to, interesting. to contemplate. So being able to look at that specific microsatellite, as you, you said, um, are you noticing that there is a lot of genetic variability within this species, even though it is such a small area they occur in? So actually, no, and that's interesting because we sort of expected it to be this way in such a small area, even with animals that are pretty territorial, like most anole species are, mm -hmm. we're seeing a lot of what's called panmixia. So that just means no genetic structuring, no major differences between these subpopulations on the island. Mm -hmm. But that's actually sort of informative for our question, because that means that anything that we see with regards to MHC will, will be informative to us rather mm -hmm. than, you know, a result of just random admixture on the island. So when you mentioned that subpopulations within the island, with there not being a lot of genetic diversity within like the actual G DNA, are you breaking them up into subpopulations based on like region? Yes. So basically what we're doing is breaking them up into subpopulations based on microclimate. So mm -hmm. an interesting mm -hmm. thing about the island of Seba is that the fact that it's a single volcanic peak means that on the windward side and then the other side of the mountain, there are two totally different microclimates. Hmm. So one of our sites is tropical rainforest. And one of them on the other side of the mountain is basically like herbaceous rangeland. So like fields, you know, but there's also like rocky areas, there's, you know, temperate forest. So even in this area of only about five square miles, there's a massive variety of really, really small climatic variations, you know, so whether it's meaningful in terms of our model or not is, is yet to be told, but it is very mm -hmm. interesting. And there are a lot of questions about transmission dynamics with, you know, the mosquito hosts that we have not been able to ask because we just don't have the data that somebody else could and should ask, you know, later mm -hmm. on in the pipeline of this research, because it's interesting. So um, doing this research, what is the end goal, would you say, from, from the point that you're at? Would it then be to be able to take this research and do further just general parasite research on different animals? Or were you, would you specifically focus on malaria within um, the data you're getting back or you will be getting back? 
So that's also a great question. So basically the point of doing this project was to test empirically the fluctuating selection hypothesis that I had mentioned but when we we're talking okay. before. Because mm -hmm. it's likely that all of those hypotheses that I had mentioned play a role to a certain degree in you know, shaping the patterns of variation we're going to see in the MHC. But we are most interested in fluctuating selection, and it's really, really, really hard to test in nature. So mm -hmm. that's sort of what we set out to do in this almost closed system of you know, the island endemic species. So what we're trying to do is just on this very small scale, see if we can find good evidence that fluctuating selection is shaping diversity in the MHC here on SEBA in this species. And then with that, we will form more robust hypotheses about patterns in larger areas where we might be seeing, you know, more gene flow, a little bit more complexity that we have here controlled for, you know? Okay. That's super cool. And then my last question, and we'll get back on to like more on track of, of who you <laughs> sure. are. Um, with the current DNA that you're sampling and the options, especially with it being such an isolated island, do you have any intention of trying to create a Jurassic Park situation? Oh my God. Okay. I wish like we've, <laughs> we've got a depauperate reptile fauna here. I'm just saying nothing's off the table. Like if we were right. going to do that, Sabo would probably be a good place. I mean, it sounds like a really good place to do it. I'm just saying yeah. it seems isolated enough that you wouldn't really have to worry. You have the DNA. You'd be able to monitor parasites throughout the population. I mean, what else do you need? I'll make a 10 foot long and hole. It'll be great. I'm just putting it out there. If Dustin Growick happens to be listening, <laughs> <laughs> this is your chance. <laughs> I'll tell my advisor. I'm sure she'll be thrilled. Yeah, please tell her that random business student from Ohio wants to know if we can create <laughs> Jurassic Park. <laughs> um, so this is, this is all very fascinating to me because I think that what you're studying isn't necessarily what I would imagine. And this is inherent bias that I think about if someone asked me 15 years ago, what a female biologist studying lizards would be looking at, I would think, oh, mating patterns, how colors are affecting, like how they attract prey, that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm definitely noticing throughout speaking with other biologists and, and learning more about what a real scientist does, um, that, girls are kicking ass. Um, but hell what, yeah. Hell yeah. Right. So one of the big conversations we had last week with, uh, Dr. Taylor is obviously her study on women and herpetology. So I'd love to know a little bit about your experiences, both in undergrad and grad school. Now, um, how are your project teams made up? How are you noticing that women are interacting with these scientific studies? And then also, um, this specific study that you're working on, what is your team breakdown for that? So that's, again, I hate to just keep saying that's a great question, but it is, you know. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> podcast host, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm co-advised by two labs, and mm -hmm. one of them is exclusively women, other than the PI, which is great. And that's the herpetology, quote unquote, lab. It's more like a, an energetics lab that just uses anoles as a study system because you okay. can make anoles run on a little treadmill and you know do whatever really okay, easily, really fast so, i'm going to pause you really fast yeah. um because can you explain what a pi is sure sorry a principal investigator my advisor okay. so the head of the lab the person who's in charge of all the projects that all the grad students do okay yeah awesome. thank you for for having me to find no yeah it's just it's one of those things where it's like i'd rather ask the dumb questions so other people know it's not what... dumb no 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 it's mm. So you're co-advised with two labs. So you have the one that's the energetics lab. Is mm -hmm. that what you said that was? It sounds yes. like an orange and theory my, kind of thing. It does. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> uh, my one advisor, Simon Laveau, studies 
anoles just as a model for animal performance. So, mm-hmm. you know, performance traits are really important to overall fitness. Performance meaning stuff like how fast does it run? How high can it jump? How hard can it bite? So that lab's all women other than Simon. And we love Simon. He's great. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. um, my other lab is also primarily women now that I think of it. My advisor in that lab is a woman. Um, and they actually mostly work on primates. They work on mandrels, which are oh, very really different monkey species in the old world, but they do yeah. a similar project to me. They work on MHC too. It's just, they use the mandrels as a study system instead of humans. Okay. So. Mandrels are one animal that scares the hell out of me. Dude, monkeys scare the shit out. I'm fucking terrified of monkeys. I'm sorry if I'm not supposed to curse. In this. Oh, you're hundred percent allowed to curse. You're okay, fine. great. <laughs> Fuck monkeys, dude. Oh my God. Like we were talking about this earlier today, especially mandrels. Like there's something about them. Like they're gigantic freaking teeth. Uh, anyway, yeah. I 100% agree. It's always funny to me when people are scared of like reptiles and s- spiders and stuff. I'm like, they're, they're not scary at all. Dude, fuck gorillas and stuff like that. Gorillas are so scary. <laughs> like I, we have, I live really close to Cincinnati Zoo and um, oh, no. they have a, well, I'm not going to talk about her on, but don't worry. <laughs> yeah. I'm not allowed to, <laughs> um, but they have in their gorilla exhibit, this, um, model of a gorilla's hand. And every time I put my hand up to it, I just like quiver a little bit. I'm like, Oh, they would kill me so fast. Like the same with big cats. Uh Uh-huh. Like one slap you're done. That's, that's so funny that you bring that up because I used to be a zookeeper intern, uh, and we had a gorilla, uh, and I would have, I didn't work with primates in my Mm -hmm. job, but I would have to pass behind the keeper facing section of the gorilla enclosure to get to the enclosure that I was going to clean. Mm-hmm. And this one gorilla just loved to fuck with people. Like he would just hide oh behind a corner <laughs> and he would come and he would grab the bars and just like shake it and yell. Like when he came around the Stop. corner, I was like, oh, like Jesus Christ. No. That's like the, that's such a big fear. Oh I think I'd quit. Like that's so funny. So I also, um, I was an intern at an aquarium before COVID and I volunteered at a zoo and I have to ask, do, are your parents animal people? So animal people in that they both like them more so my dad, but neither of them by profession. Okay. So I want to know if this is just like an experience that I have with my parents is that my parents just assume because I worked in one department, I know everything about the zoo. So my parents would bring me to the zoo like this year um, when we were able to go back like with masks and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, We'd be by the tigers and my dad's like, what's that one's name? And I'm like, I worked with the armadillos. Like, I don't know anything about these guys. I think that the zoo I worked at was a lot smaller than the Cincinnati Zoo. So to a certain Mm -hmm. degree, you know, like we knew the names of all the the big charismatic megafauna, but definitely not, you know, every single animal. And I think that is definitely a universal experience where I think most people who are animal people, like, will go get tested by people close to them in their lives just for random trivia. I'm like, I don't fucking know. Like, Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was actually talking, I was on the different, I was on a podcast last night, um, totally devoted, excellent podcast talking about a couple where the husband really likes animals and the wife isn't as into it. So really fun. I love it. Um, but Shannon, the wife was interviewing me and, uh, she asked me, we are talking about the dating and like, you know, being trying to find a partner when you have animals and all stuff. One of the things I noticed is that people fucking quiz me. They'd be like on my Tinder, like I have pictures of animals on it. And they're like, oh, well, do you even know X, Y, Z? And I'm like, well, yeah, I do. But why'd you have to double check? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. It's always just like a flex thing, especially with with hurt people and guys in herpetology, you know, like I won't go that far into that, but it's definitely like a very much like, like 
pissing contest about who knows what Latin name or whatever, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Okay. I don't even remember how we got on that topic. Um, <laughs> but I have one more question about, oh, cause you were talking about mm-hmm. man drills. Yes. 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 Terrifying. Did you animals. see the study? <laughs> I just want your feedback. The study uh-huh. that came out a couple weeks ago and it was like all over science community Twitter with like people thinking they could fight different animals. Yes. Oh my God. I was dying over this. I was fucking losing my mind over this. Like the amount of people who think that they could fight, like even like, what was it? Like a bear? Yeah. Oh yeah. Impossible. <laughs> like shut up. Like shut up. Like, I think honestly, if a goose came at me fast enough, I would give up. Okay. I was at the park today, just like walking on the sidewalk and this goose was looking at me sideways. And I, you know, there was like a, somebody sitting on the bench, like 10 feet away from me. And I didn't want to look like an idiot. So I was just like, I got to play it cool. <laughs> and I'm not going to like let this goose make me get off the sidewalk. And I walked yes. right by this motherfucker and he looked at me. He's like, Shh. I was like, uh, uh. <laughs> I had to like give him the wave. I was like, not today. That makes me laugh because I follow you on Twitter, obviously. And you'll constantly post pictures of like an alligator, like two feet below you when you're on a dock. And you're like, don't even worry about it. It's fine. And now you're like, I fuck geese. <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, I like geese. Yeah, I respect them, but I fear them, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. alligators. Healthy respect. Yeah, yeah alligators I'm not afraid of when I see them because I don't you know put myself in positions where I would be at risk if I'm on a boardwalk three feet above it's it's like sunning itself it doesn't care it's the alligators you don't see that you should worry about because they're yeah. out looking for food the ones yeah. that are hauling you know their big butts up on the leaves and shit are like 100% vibing you know leave them alone don't Just mess with them don't time. get too close yeah you're totally safe I've never felt nervous mm-hmm. at that park but you know, if I was in the water, it'd be a different story for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and we will talk about that, but before, mm-hmm. like I said, we have to start at the beginning of my notes, even though we're 30 minutes in whatever. <laughs> so, um, I was just really excited about your research. Cause I was reading also for those who haven't looked it up, it's the Anolis Sabanis and it looks like a leopard gecko and an anole had a baby. They're so cute. It's like the first thing I thought. It's got the colors and the spots of a leopard gecko and then the face of the anole. Like it's just what the males look like for? that. The oh, females oh. are pretty drab and just brown because they can be, you know, they don't have to yeah. compete. So they don't have to work for, for them. Doing the Honestly, least. Honestly, they deserve it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so let's back up. So you currently live in Louisiana, which we talked about, which is why you have all these awesome experiences seeing geese and alligators just on the day to day. But you didn't grow up in Louisiana. You mentioned earlier that you grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, so talking about growing up, when did this love of animals and then specifically this fascination of herps really evolve for you? So my dad, when I was really little, was really into taking my brother and I camping, fishing, birding, stuff like that. Oh, birding, whatever. It's fine. Um, so I've been sort of indoctrinated from a very early age. We grew up with a backyard where, you know, you'd flip a rock and there'd be a toad or a salamander or something mm-hmm. like that. So a lot of it was just by early exposure, I think. And by a could anything... Um, my dad also, when I was, I think I, I could have been less than two, took us to a reptile show and bought me a snake. I think I was <laughs> 15 months old. Anyway, uh, that snake just died like a year ago. I had the motherfucker. He was like 25. Like, wow. I had two of them and one of them died, I think two or two years ago or so there were corn snakes. So those were my earliest pets. Um, and 
that was what started the snowball rolling. And from there, it was only my parents' fault that I wanted more and more. I was like, you should never have let me get a taste of, of this, you know? So Yeah, that's like giving um, your kid ice cream I started working too young yeah. and they love sugar. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like, what do you, what do you expect? Uh, so I worked at a pet store in Philadelphia from the, I think I was like 15 when I started working there all through early mid college. And Mm -hmm. it was a family owned pet store. So we had a lot of exotic animals, a lot of reptiles. And my job was basically to take care of the reptiles, fishes, inverts section. So Mm -hmm. that was where I got a lot of my hobbyist knowledge and where I actually picked up most of my pets that I currently have to this day. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that, um, it, it, it's like, a, was it a true exotics store where you're working with exotic mammals or was it more your typical, you know, fish and, you know, gerbils and, and ball pythons? So I guess that depends on your definition of exotic mammals, because mm-hmm. I think the most exotic we would get is like hedgehogs, degus, stuff like that, ferrets. Um, I think that was about it. So no like primates or anything really off the rails like that but definitely a little bit spicier of mammals and we would have this is not sanctioned by me by the way by any means like as you know the 26 year old conservation biologist I am but looking back you know we had all kinds of like caimans baby alligators like stuff nobody has any business having as a pet but it was yeah it sure was there you know so yeah and I think you bring up a good point because we spoke a little bit before we started recording about how Pennsylvania is kind of like a uh, do whatever the fuck you want when it comes to exotics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm curious to know when you're, did you always have these uh, feelings or passion towards conservation and, and, and towards like working with the environment? Was that a result of working at the pet store or how did the pet store at all influence your feelings on these topics? So I think that when I was a teenager working at the pet store in you know, a primarily male-dominated environment, I wasn't very aware of a lot of the conservation issues that surrounded the supply of a lot of the animals that came in. Because again, mm-hmm. you know, I was in high school, you know, whatever, like, oh, cool frog, cool snake. But the older I got and the more I started diving into the literature, learning more about, you know, the social component of this sort of thing, the more mm-hmm. I started questioning, you know, ethics behind where you source your animals, how you house your animals, you know, quality of habitat setup, you know, versus quantity of animals I could grim in this space, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I would definitely not say that when I was a teenager working there, I was that (laughs) aware of a lot of the more nuanced subjects of keeping exotic reptiles. And a lot of this came with going to school for conservation and sort of seeing it from a totally different light where It was very anti-pet trade, you know, Mm anti-captive keeping of a lot of stuff. And you sort of develop a a middle ground opinion when you come from it from both the hobbyist origin and, you know, the burgeoning conservationist mindset. Mm -hmm. So I I find myself as sort of a moderate, I guess, on a lot of these topics now, Mm -hmm. where I can certainly see all of the valid criticisms about the pet trade and, you know, keeping of exotic reptiles, but I'm not you know, a hard line on any particular subject. I think that it comes down to the individual species, individual person, collection, stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And that was one of the things I wanted to ask you was how colleagues or, or other students or professors 
their rhetoric around specifically reptile keeping. Um, and I think if you also look at it in the context of what's occurring in Florida and the legislation changes, obviously as a hobbyist, part of you is, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. So as a hobbyist, part of me is, is upset that people are having to potentially give up animals or lose the opportunity to work with these animals. Then also someone care, who cares a lot about the environment, you think like, we should be cracking down on some invasive species, but also shouldn't we be cracking down on outdoor cats or animals that aren't as vilified as reptiles? That's a really good point. And I have definitely had a shift in opinion on this over the past several years, specifically with regards to the invasive situation in Florida, because I'm in a lot of Facebook groups, you know, field herping, whatever, and, you know, the US, mm -hmm. North America. And even in just, you know, an anecdotal sense in the past few years, it's just absolutely nuts. The increase in just wild, bizarre shit that people will post, like a handful of toke geckos, like in fucking like Fort Lauderdale or wherever it is, and like a tegu or whatever. And I'm like, I haven't been to Florida to herp ever, but like, that's, that's, that's wild. That's beyond me. The fact that that has been allowed to happen. And on the one hand, I would hate you know, for somebody to come into my house and say, like, give me your your reptiles, you know, nobody mm -hmm. would ever look favorably upon that happening. But I I have to think that there's got to be something done, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's like a grandfathering in of people who already have these animals, but, you know, a limit on future acquisitions, future breeding, stuff like that. It's a really complex problem with no one clear solution. And mm -hmm. I think that everybody, or again, I, I can only speak for myself. Most people who keep reptiles always think of themselves as the exception to the rule. Mm -hmm. And I sort of think that's like a logical fallacy because in the end, we're all a little bit complicit in this, you know, but I think that it's up to us to sort of step away from our personal feelings about it and look at it in a more holistic, ecologically centered way. And I don't think that always means, you know, like we're, we have to give up our animals. I think it just means maybe we need to consider whether this future potential acquisition means more in the grand scheme of, you know, like universal good than protecting tropical ecosystems, et cetera, which this mm -hmm. got a little long-winded, but I think, I think you see where I'm coming from about it. Oh, no. I, and I think it's an important topic. And I know that, you know, to anyone listening, like it is a hot button topic to talk about, but I think I think it is so important that we have scientists who are also herp keepers having these conversations just as loudly as people who are primarily um, herp keepers, because, you know, we need to look at it from all angles. That's just the reality. We're in this situation for a reason. And, and as people who care about the animals and care about the environment inherently, like we should be thinking of, okay, what can we do? to maybe one day solve this problem enough to no longer need legislation or allow people to have animals back and such. Yeah, I think that one thing that's really important to consider is just local ecology, because again, you're not gonna have these sorts of problems in areas where you you know have a winter that will kill off these tropical reptiles, because I think it's like Northern border of Florida above like, you know, the Gulf Coast primarily, you're not, you're not gonna have these kind of problems, mm -hmm. so. Not that these things don't get out in other places. They just don't establish and take root, which I'm sure you know. But yeah, again, it's yeah. not like you need to necessarily ban captive keeping everywhere. There just might need to be different 
legislation in different places that takes into account the specific local risk of certain things mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. So when you, um, so going back a little bit, what were the conversations like when you first got started in your, was your undergraduate degree in conservation? So my undergraduate degree was in ecology and evolutionary biology. So that okay. involved a lot of conservation classes, but was primarily, you know, more ecological lean. Okay. So were these conversations you were having um, about, you know, people being upset with the pet trade and upset with captive keeping in undergrad? Did you see it more in graduate school or has it been kind of an even mix? So I think it started for me an undergraduate because I was working in a lab that dealt with chytridiomycosis, which you may know, but the mm, listeners mm -hmm. may not, is a pandemic in amphibians. So it's a fungal pathogen that has spread catastrophically throughout the planet and is primarily a problem in kind of tropical areas, but is established in the United States now, has driven many, many tropical species to extinction and has been facilitated largely by the pet trade and by the food trade. So it's not just the pet trade again, um, food trade in bullfrogs and, you know, large food frogs has been a humongous problem with this, but I, so I never considered that, worked, that. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. That it would be food frogs, but that does make sense. Cause that is also another really big industry for bringing in non-native species. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot going on that just, you know, even reptile hobbyists don't really know that much about again, cause it's not really on my radar, you know, like the wet market for, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, all that to say, I think that I was a little bit more in the loop of it just for that reason, because I was working in a Kittred lab. Mm -hmm. But as I moved into graduate school, it became less of a conversation that was entrenched in the curriculum and more just something I was exploring in my personal, you know, knowledge acquisition, because that was when I had sort of had the decision that I was probably not going to acquire more pets which mm -hmm. is again, a very, very personal decision. And that's not right for everybody. It was just right for me. Cause I was like, you know, I have as many as I feel like I can comfortably give really, really, really good lives. Like mm -hmm. I care a lot about, you know doing daily checks of well-being on, you know all my animals very thoroughly like daily spot clean stuff like that. And that was my maximum. But mm -hmm. when I started looking more into just optimal husbandry especially for my sulcata it just raises all these questions, you know, in online forums about, you know, the ethics of the broader theme, I guess. So mm -hmm. it was Specifically less, with less about school. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I got her when I was, I think I must've been 17 years old and mm -hmm. she was just, you know, sort of a raggedy sulcata that was at the store that I worked at that I ended up taking home and like mm -hmm. TLCing and whatever, but here she is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> however many years later and I love her to death, but it's, you know, I love her. Like she's my baby. I spend all day, every day with her, but I don't think everybody should have one. I don't think almost anybody should have one, you know, mm -hmm. and the whole national situation with sulcatas is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's, I work for reptile rescue and, and we turn sulcatas away sometimes because we just cannot handle it. It's like, what are you going to do with a reptile? That's that enormous and that destructive and that specialized with husbandry, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. you know, the list goes on. Yeah. And, and, and at this point when you do know more and you obviously have meatball the sulcata in your life, what is your contingency plan for, um, for when you eventually are too old to take care of it or unable to take care of them anymore? So my strategy so far, uh, thankfully I got her again when I was still a kid, 
but it is still likely she'll outlive me. And my strategy has been to just ingratiate her with everybody I know. Like my my fiance's <laughs> family loves Meatball. Like his sisters mm-hmm. are constantly asking, can I, when can I babysit her? When can she come stay with us? Like if you guys are going out of town, she can come be in our mm-hmm. yard or whatever. And we have, you know, a plan set up for every time we're away, we have a sitter system, a second tier sitter system, whatever. It's a family effort to take care of her, a family effort to think about what's going to happen with her. And it has to be, like mm-hmm. you said. Right. And do you, with with Meatball and then with also your other animals, um, you spoke that you have naturalistic setups. Are you doing much in in regards to offering UV or additional supplements in your uh, setups? So... For Meatball, yes, she has full spectrum UVB lighting and she also spends most of the time outside when it's warm enough for her to be out there just because, Mm -hmm. you know, natural sunlight is by far the best. Mm -hmm. And my snakes have a mixture of LED lighting and just like window light access. So Mm -hmm. they don't have full spectrum UVB. Um, They don't need it necessarily as much as, you know, like a squamate or not a squamate, like a lizard would, a bearded Mm -hmm. dragon. But I do say I keep, you know, my finger on the pulse of as well I can updates that I could make that would help them out. But mm-hmm. as of now, they have a mixture of naturalistic and LED. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so we've, we've danced around it a little bit, but you eventually moved from Pennsylvania and you're now in New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. Was that a decision that came with your schooling or was it due to your fiance? So I went to Tulane for my undergraduate education and Mm -hmm. I moved away and I worked on the West Coast in fisheries biology actually for a year before I moved back here. And I did move back here to be with my fiance, but you know, for school, for work, whatever else. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a hard place to leave once you've lived here for a little while. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I think it's like a Herper's paradise from what you post. Um, So you seem to do a lot of I don't know necessarily, would you call it field herping or are you just more kind of exploring (laughs) and just running across a lot of herps? (laughs) (laughs) I have places where I'll go for specific things. Like if I'm in a frogging mood, you know, I have specific places that I'll go where I know there'll be certain species. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of herping more so than anything else and everything else I see is incidental, I guess. But Louisiana is a great place to herp mostly because it's subtropical, like Mm -hmm. Florida but doesn't have nearly the invasive species problem that Florida has. So mm-hmm. we, we do have the very beginning of a problem with Cuban tree frogs in New Orleans, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. we still have most of our native populations doing pretty well, as well as they could be, you know, considering all the other kind of climate issues that are going on in Louisiana. So mm-hmm. it's pretty good for herping, all things considered. And I hope it stays that way, but, you know, everything's sort of still up in the air. Yeah. And so when... You are a member of New Orleans Frog Watch. What is Mm -hmm. Frog Watch? So Frog Watch is a community or citizen science program that's a branch of the AZA or the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. And basically what it is, is a network of volunteers that goes out at night and monitors frog calls. So February through September here is when we'll do it because that's just when they're active. And the point Mm -hmm. of it is to just monitor phenology, phenology meaning the change in species behaviors, you know, in a general sense as seasons change. So when they start chirping in February, when they stop activity in the fall, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And this 
makes me think back to one of the studies. Um, you said you had another published research paper, which was on uh, there's two, the Jacana Jacana and Jacana Spinosa, those two birds. Is that how you say that? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So that was, so I was saying Hakana. I think there's multiple ways you can. There's like Jasana, Hakana, Jacana. It's all regional, I think, but mm-hmm. you can say it however phonetically it makes sense. <laughs> Hakanas are wading birds that mm-hmm. are native to Central and South America, and there's also African species, but the interesting thing about them is they have a sex role reversed breeding system. So mm-hmm. the females will manage sort of harems of males where the females will lay eggs in the nests of multiple males and the males will actually incubate the eggs and, you know, take care of the nests. And the females are bigger, sort of showier, and they'll prowl around their territories checking on all their BFs, you know? So oh, wow. <laughs> there's a lot of really interesting behavioral stuff, neuroendocrinological eh, and neuroendocrinological chronologic I don't need fun. neuroendocrinology I'm just gonna leave it at that um yeah no <laughs> interesting one's hormonal stuff <laughs> great mm-hmm. but yeah so what I was studying in that system was vocalization differences between the two species because both of them do vocalize not in the way that songbirds do where you know they have like elaborate courtship songs that they'll sing it's mostly like a, a nasty squawk that they'll do but mm-hmm. it might be informative to each other anyway so I was recording calls of both species and also mm-hmm. hybrids of the two species to see if there were measurable spectral or you know sound differences in the qualities of these calls that could be linked to keeping them from hybridizing it's like you know one species like uh, oh, you sound horrible you know you don't sound like something I want to mate with mm-hmm. um because you do see hybrids of these two species. So that was a totally different project than anything I work on right now, but it was really cool and it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it made me think about it um, because ob- I like at the, before you sent this over, I was familiar with Frog Watch and that was like mainly based on vocalizations and, and using that as a way of, of monitoring species. And then for you to mm-hmm. be doing another vocalization-based study, I thought that was very like not ironic very interesting Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a nice little tie together there (laughs) right I think Um, it's so cool yeah absolutely but with this other project so with the uh Jakana or Hakana study that you were doing was that a situation where you got to be in situ uh monitoring these species yes it was so much fun I was working in Panama with Sarah Lipschitz who's also on Twitter she's so cool she's one of the smartest people I've ever met and she just got her own lab at Loyola University of Chicago I'm so proud of her anyway oh, congratulations uh, Sarah yeah. but uh so I was her undergraduate assistant one of them on this project and mm-hmm. so we went with her to Panama and we were doing experiments behavioral experiments where basically she had built these bird robots that were taxidermied hakanas on a little swivel mount and we tied strings to it and we were standing like 25 feet behind it in like a hunting blind and like pulling the strings and had a, like a oh speaker that was playing the call and these female birds would come and they just beat the crap out of this like taxidermy because they saw it as you know like a female encroaching on their territory and it was mm-hmm. really cool it was so much fun <laughs> that's very weakened of, yeah. at Ernie's it was yeah, it was awesome <laughs> but that was my first like big major field experience and it was a blast it was really cool mm-hmm. so so what was the um what was it like to be doing field work i think that especially in a, in a different country i'd love to just know kind of like the process like how did you get involved with this with this specific professor and and get chosen to go on this specific study and and just kind of walk me through what that's like as as an undergraduate 
Sure. So I sort of got lucky in that I had just become really friendly with a professor who knew that this grad student was looking for field assistance. And mm -hmm. she just pegged me as, you know, hey, I could recommend Gina. And I basically, you know, just had it be as easy as that, which I'm very grateful for to this day because I know how, you know, privileged and fortunate that is. But mm -hmm. the experience in and of itself was especially interesting because our field team was all women, except for one local biologist who was a man who was studying at a Panamanian university, who mm -hmm. was with us sometimes, but not all the time. But, mm -hmm. you know, as three women in the field, sometimes by themselves in a country where, you know, we speak the language in sort of a rudimentary fashion, there was a lot to, to think about um, and to prepare for, for sure. Yeah. So I'm looking at the study now. I have it up on my other screen. And one of the things that we talked about with, um, with Dr. Taylor, I say we, it was me, um, but I talked about with Dr. Taylor um, was naming conventions for uh, research studies. So I'm reading this now. Um, Evan J. Buck, Tony Brown, Gina Zwicky, Elizabeth Derryberry, and Sarah Lipschitz. So I'm assuming that Sarah was your advisor for this project? Yes, she was a PhD student at the time. Okay. But she was the lead on the project. She's the lead on the project. And then Evan, with his name being first, or their name, I'm sorry, I don't want to assume, were they, what was their role in the project? And then what were the roles of Tony, yourself, and Elizabeth? So actually, that's interesting because the project that, you know, this paper is based on was years before this article was written. This is when I was an undergrad. I think it was 2015 that I actually collected oh, this data. Okay. So I just collected the data. I didn't have that much to do with the preparation of the paper or the figures or whatever. I was just out there mm -hmm. with the microphone bothering the birds, you know, mm -hmm. but it's a cool example of how, you know, data can get passed from hand to hand before it eventually ends up being published. I've actually never met Evan or Tony. Uh, Dr. Derryberry was formerly at Tulane and has since moved to, I think it's UT Knoxville. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, this was years after. I've never met Evan or Tony. So that is so I'm very grateful that they wrote up my data. <laughs> Thank you guys. <laughs> but, oh, I, I guess I yeah. didn't, I guess I didn't think of that. So with this current project you're working on with, with the malaria and, and the, um, the specific species of anole, the data was collected, did you say 20 years ago? So it's been collected, I believe annually, or if not annually, every couple of years since mm -hmm. 98. I think. Okay. So I'm only looking at data from three specific years, 2004, mm -hmm. 2009, and 2014. So that just kind of is a nice round, you know, data set for me to look at where, yeah. okay, we can be like, all right, what's changed from 2004 to 2009? What's changed from 2009 to 2014? It's long enough that you could expect to see changes, you know, but not so long that it becomes unwieldy. Mm -hmm. So when you, I'm assuming your goal is to eventually publish a piece regarding this research, will you give credit to the, the researchers who collected those data, that data from those three years? So authorship is sort of complicated and authorship conventions are a hot button topic in the scientific community. But my mm -hmm. philosophy on this is that authorship is cheap. And that meaning it costs you nothing to just give somebody credit, you know, mm -hmm. as an author for even a marginal contribution. So mm -hmm. I tend to think that I would be very liberal <laughs> with, with granting authorship. And I don't actually know all the people who have collected this data. Uh, the person who is sort of my point person for this is the Dean of Science at a university in New York. So 
I haven't directly corresponded with anybody but her about this, but that's a mm -hmm. great question. And I'm definitely going to look into it to make sure that, you know, everybody involved gets their due credit, because I think this is an area where science can really improve by just being a little bit more generous with, with authorship, especially with undergraduates, mentees, stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I was just curious, cause I, I've just got authorship on the brain after speaking with Dr. Taylor and, and especially with the, the women in herpetology study that was, that was done. Oh, it's a great um, question, especially because I think that especially in herpetology, there's a, a bit of a problem with especially female mentees and undergraduates being passed over for authorship mm -hmm. where they have made meaningful contributions. Mm -hmm. So anything that anyone who is aware of the problem can do to sort of stem the flow of that, they mm -hmm. should, I think. And then with, with your undergraduate, was the Jakana study or Hakana the only um, field work you were doing? So I was actually doing field work locally in Louisiana on cricket frogs, mm -hmm. where I was going out with another who was at the time a PhD student and swabbing frogs for chytrid fungus. So it was a lot of fun. Right. Yeah, we were working would, in the chytrid yeah, lab. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we would go camping and like the Achafala Bays and go catch a bunch of frogs. It was a great time. So what that was my fantastic team, weekend, yeah. right? It was so much fun. We'd have like our little foil packet food. Oh, that was a great time. Mm -hmm. so it was awesome. Specifically talking about the chytrid fungus, similar to the research you're doing now, are you noticing an evolution of this fungus is, and how does it react differently than, I mean, I know this is a dumb question, but how this fungus is still parasitic in nature in the sense that it, you know, it, it feeds off the animal and, and eventually can lead to its demise. What are the different things that you're looking for in a fungus or a disease versus a, a, a true parasite? So you could actually consider parasites and pathogens to sort of be functionally similar. Mm -hmm. There's not that much of a difference in like what they do. You know, if it impacts mm -hmm. fitness negatively, it impacts fitness negatively. It doesn't really matter if it's a tapeworm or, you know, a bacteria in the end. Also really um, fast. I'm so sure. scared of tapeworms. Oh my oh God, my me God. too. Holy shit. That's like my number one fear. <laughs> we, we did, I took a class, um, actually taught through the Cincinnati Zoo and we, it was, um, oh my gosh, it was animal diversity. And we went through every kingdom and like talked about it and, um, not mm -hmm. kingdom, every, oh God, every five, oh fuck, obviously I don't remember. Um, but when we did the parasite section that was the only thing in that class <laughs> and the only animal related thing that has truly made my skin crawl because like I mentioned I, I have green tree pythons um mm -hmm. and I do have one wild caught animal which the way I acquired it um I didn't intend to buy a wild caught animal it just kind of happened but I treated it this is gross I'm going to give you like a little bit of a warning and I treated it with paniker after we realized that it had some sign of parasites and it pooped out a worm that I could have used to go fishing with. Like, and it wasn't like a tapeworm, like it was truly like a, a big thick worm. And I, I walked in, it was, <laughs> my animal was quarantined and I walked into my bedroom where it was being quarantined and I looked in the cage and I saw it and I had to walk out because I was like, I don't think I can oh clean God. it. <laughs> I literally did it. <gasps> It's so funny that you bring that up. Um, Meatball last year, she again spends the days outside because sulcata tortoises need natural sunlight, whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, so I came out one day to just like check on her in the middle of the day and like feed her or whatever. And she had shot out this giant fucking roundworm. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> I was like, don't. But 
but anyway, I had to take her to the vet to get worms because tortoises mm-hmm. are not as easy to give an oral worm or two because it's just going to be like, fuck you. You know, I'm putting my head back in my shell. Yeah. It's like, and, <laughs> yeah. And it was during COVID. So I, I couldn't go in. I have no earthly idea to this day how they got her to take the wormer. She came out looking just so fucking miserable with like panicure <laughs> on her face. Like, Ugh! yeah, like she had a but rough it was the night. same yeah. exact thing where I was just, oh my God, it was so disgusting. Like I totally, I... Mm. like they're cool. Parasites are, are cool. You know, I, I can't hate them, but intestinal worms are like my one thing where I'm just like, nah, I, <laughs> yeah, like, I can do a lot of things, but that I, I seriously I'm not even joking I seriously considered selling the animal I, was like, I, just, I don't think I'd need it <laughs> I, don't I don't blame think. you I totally don't blame you <laughs> so I sent a picture to their previous owner um because I had gotten it from someone else um and they work in an animal rescue and so they're very used to parasites and I was like hey like it had a really massive parasite like I think that's why I was having trouble putting on weight and they had me send them a picture and they were like holy shit and I was like yeah I told you like oh, oh my god <laughs> okay like, yeah, it's like-, like so morbidly fascinating though like uh when I was working in fisheries biology we would catch these things called arrowtooth flounder which are mm-hmm. like these really big jagged tooth like you know flounder looking thing but they have mm-hmm. copepods which are a type of crustacean which will attach themselves to their eyeballs and they have like horrible little like tags do you do you play pokemon i don't i'm so sorry okay, that's fine i was just gonna say that it looks like a chime echo like pokemon like dangling from their eyeballs uh it's fucking mm-hmm. disgusting it's like so cool though i have a video of this somewhere that i'll have to send you after we're done but um yeah please disgusting uh fish parasites are so much more gross than like any other parasite like the okay. tongue isopod that's like, what i was gonna shit. ask yeah oh my god the tongue isopod i remember the first time i saw that and i was like maybe i don't like animals yeah, like, maybe animals maybe, are gross and whack. Yeah. Maybe they're just not for me. <laughs> <laughs> but oh going way God. back to the very beginning of this, you had a really interesting question about hatred yes. and like how it affects. So there has been some really interesting recent research on what's called the skin microbiome. So mm-hmm. all animals naturally have a flora of microorganisms that live on their skin. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're in a sense, symbiotic, like it's healthy for them to be there. They can prevent other organisms from colonizing that could be harmful. So Mm -hmm. a recent area of research is in natural skin flora of amphibians in the wild that might actually be inhibitive to chytrid. And there have been some Hmm. cool things found where there are species of bacteria that actually inhibit and degrade chytrid fungus. So potentially, I can't say that I'm really up on the chytrid literature to to date, which is unfortunate, but Mm -hmm. I've heard talk of potential for probiotics to be helpful in actually addressing chytrid in situ. Mm-hmm. So so thinking in, into the pet trade and, and captive collections, once again, another dumb question, but this is just my non-science mind asking questions. Why can you not treat a chytrid fungus like any other fungus and use like an antifungal medication? So Interestingly, the best way to treat chytrid is actually with temperature. So chytrid mm-hmm. dies off at high temperatures, which are still pretty tolerable to the amphibian host. Mm-hmm. And this is cool because this is actually a large subset of the research done by the lab that I worked in. And it was like a cool novel discovery at the time. But wow. frogs have super porous skin. They're really sensitive to any sort of environmental contaminant. So the use of antifungals is a pretty sensitive mm-hmm. you know, thing to do. I don't have a great answer for that. I don't know the actual, you know, physiological responses they would have to like a typical antifungal. Mm-hmm. So that's a good question. I'll have to look more into it. But I think that 
as far as I know, there are just better alternatives that involve less aggressive treatment methods. So is the fact that chytrid dies off at higher temps unusual for fungi? Because I guess I associate fungi occurring in, in dark, warm areas. So in my head, a warmer temperature would encourage more growth. So fungi typically do well, like you said, in dark and warm environments, but not hot. Like there's a mm. pretty slight but really important difference between warm and hot that makes mm-hmm. a humongous difference in how they'll, you know, exist. Like even just anecdotally locally, like in the springtime here, it is popping off with mushrooms. Like I will collect mm-hmm. oyster mushrooms, woodier, like whatever, like every time it rains, it's just explosion. And it's probably 80, 85 degrees at most. Mm-hmm. The second it hits above like 88, 90, you're going to see fuck all like <laughs> with respect to fungus, like you might see the very occasional mushroom, but it's just mm-hmm. too dry, too hot not hospitable. So mm-hmm. there's a really happy medium that exists just below this temperature extreme for most fungi. And chytrid, I think, prefers it even cooler than most. And where it's a real problem is at higher elevation, sort of like cool water stream habitats, like in mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. cloud forests in Central America, where it's been such a problem for so many of these frogs that have gone extinct. So when you were doing your chytrid research and you were going out and testing the cricket frogs, um, ethically, is there a choice you ever have to make of potentially euthanizing in the field animals that you can tell are perpetuating the fungus at like a higher rate, like maybe ones that are particularly sick or are showing a lot more symptoms than other, or were you not really doing that? So our job was to examine sort of what's going on in a context that was outside of our actions. So mm-hmm. it just wasn't applicable to the study we were doing. There are approaches that you can take where you know you encounter an animal in the field that's obviously suffering. Like I think bird people are faced with this sometimes when they misnet birds that are, you know, wounded mm-hmm. or diseased, but that just wasn't a component of what we were doing. Interesting mm-hmm. question though. Okay. I just I, I just think that can be I get where you're saying in my head, it's like, oh, if it's sick and it could be hurt in the population, why wouldn't you euthanize it? But you are right that that is not really our decision to make necessarily. It's not so much that it's not our decision in that it is that it skews the results potentially. So mm-hmm. the point of the study we're doing is to see what's going on in nature in as unbiased a way as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. So us, you know, artificially manipulating the dynamics that we're seeing at these study sites would influence the results we get. And then we might not get meaningful data anymore if we know mm-hmm. that we have been, you know, like messing around with the natural dynamics that are going on there. So right. as tempting as it is, you know, I personally would think that it would be more ethical to euthanize an animal that's obviously suffering. It just, you know, for the greater good of learning something meaningful about something that we could better understand or, you know, do better to protect the population as a whole, we kind of have to like let that go in mm-hmm. the moment. Yeah. And then when you, when you, when you speak in, uh, of chytrid specifically, is this only affecting frogs or does it affect other um, amphibians and does it affect them at every stage of life or only in adult stage? So there's a lot going on there. So there's actually species that affect salamanders. That's becoming more and more of a problem, especially in the UK. I believe they're mm-hmm. having a problem with native newt species in the last few years there. Mm. Uh, with Batrachochytrium salamandrivorans is what that one's called. Whereas the frog one is Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it sounds like I'm fucking sneezing. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> Is uh, this a Harry Potter podcast? Yeah, right. <laughs> but chytrid typically attacks keratin, keratinized tissues. So mm-hmm. in tadpoles, larval amphibians, that's typically around the mouth parts. It's not, you know, as whole body of a thing. But mm-hmm. in metamorphosed frogs, it's, you know, pretty much everything is fair game. It's all, you know, keratin in the skin tissue. Mm-hmm. So you'll see stuff like skin sloughing, redness, lack of writing reflex, all sorts of systemic symptoms that you don't so much see in the larvae because it's just around the mouth that you'll have the keratin deposits mostly. Yeah. And and is this, um, this is a disease that, that passes from animal to animal very quickly, right? It's not necessarily like the malaria that we discussed where it has to come from a a host that then puts it into the bloodstream. Even worse, it's an environmental pathogen. It can exist in the aquatic habitat absent of the host for a considerable amount of time. And this becomes a problem, uh, especially with wildlife importation, because Mm -hmm. even the water that the frogs had been shipped in is now a disease vector. And if you dispose of this improperly, you're just dumping, you know, a bag of fucking chytrid water into like, you know, a system where it maybe wasn't before. So all sorts of biohazards come along with that mm-hmm. because I don't remember exactly how long it can persist, but it's a, an aquatic pathogen. You know, it lives in water for a pretty, pretty damn long time. And mm-hmm. this becomes a huge problem because just treating the individual amphibians isn't enough. You treat the amphibian, then you put it back and there's still chytrid in the environment. So mm-hmm. that's a huge complicating factor to solving this problem. Wow. I guess I didn't consider that. So, so when you talk about, um, you know, getting rid of the water improperly, what does that mean? Like if, it, if you flush it down the toilet, you know, you get a, you get a new frog, you put it in your tank, you put the old water down the sink or the toilet. Is that potentially contaminating the, the water systems in the area? It could be. Yeah. Depending on, you know, wastewater treatment where you live. Um, you know, if it's not, sterilized who knows where it's going to end up and what it's going to come in contact with like there are frogs Mm -hmm. that you know live in toilet tanks you've seen all you know i'm sure the silly images online of that but you know Mm -hmm. anything's possible for sure wow wow yeah it's like cool and depressing but yeah that's exactly what it is and it it makes you like it it makes you worry and like think about things in, in your personal collection like i think about my animals and like Okay. Well, what, what should I be worried about? But then also like you think of the greater good, like the animals mm-hmm. around you. So um, as someone who goes into the field often and is doing this kind of research or just also just experiencing the animals and enjoying the animals, what precautions do you take to make sure that you're never spreading pathogens between new animals that you're seeing? So I don't touch animals in the field if I can avoid it. I, mm-hmm. you know, I know that there's like a lot of opinions on this, especially in field herping. And I'm not here to say that my way is the highway, you know, whatever, but um, Mm -hmm. unless an animal's in the middle of the road and needs to be moved, I don't touch it. So there's that, especially amphibians, because I'm sure you know, but again, the listeners might not, whatever you have on your skin could potentially be absorbed by the amphibian. So you have Mm -hmm. bug spray on, you have lotion on, maybe it won't be a huge deal. Maybe it'll kill it. You know, who knows? I just don't touch them. I don't mess with them. Um, I also, if my boots have been in water, will wash, disinfect my boots, you know, avoid spreading again, aquatic pathogens, because this is a huge way to spread chytrid Mm -hmm. and has probably been a a major contributor. Uh, Honestly, biologists have probably spread chytrid all across the planet before Mm -hmm. we really knew better, you know, and knew that we had to disinfect our boots if we're going to, you know, a different region, different study site. Mm -hmm. So when was it that chytrid really 
you know, came on the scene as, as a, as a concern, obviously it's probably been around for a while, but, um, I feel like when I look back on what I was thinking about in terms of animal diseases, as a kid who was interested in animals, um, the first thing that comes to my mind of something I was aware of was the, uh, what is it? The white nose, white nose fungus, white nose fungus. Yeah. So I feel like that was something that when I was younger, I heard about all the time for the bats. And now in the last few years, it's been chytrid's been a really big thing. And I say last few years, probably last 10 years. I've heard about it more. When was it really that there was a push to learn more about this fungus specifically? So in the last few decades of the 1900s, there were precipitous declines in a lot of tropical amphibian species that people just didn't understand. They didn't know why it was happening. They were noticing population declines, you know, weird symptoms. Like I said, the skin sloughing, the weird ataxia kind of issues. What's ataxia? Just like a weirdness of movement, like inability to move properly. Um, Okay. But it was only in the last couple of decades that people actually isolated the pathogen responsible and sort of started to understand what was going on. And in the early to mid 2000s, it became more of a hot button research topic. And it's now very widely and intensely studied. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of really cool novel research all the time. It's even since I worked in the Kittred lab in undergrad, it's just exploded. Right. And when you, and I know this is undergrad, but I just am curious about it. Yeah, um, yeah. When you speak about chytrid in, 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 in frogs specifically, is it one species of chytrid that has a tendency to affect all frogs? Or are you noticing that there are subspecies ac- around the world? So there are strains of chytrid uh, within mm-hmm. the single species, BD, Betrachochytrium dendrobatidis. But as far as I know, just the one species, I could, I could be wrong, but that's, I think the last that I had known. But there are certain strains that are known to occur more prominently in, you know, a single region, some of which are much more pathogenic, much more, you know, harmful to the frogs and a lot going on. But I think that bacterial taxonomy is also sort of complicated. And the difference between, at least to me, a strain and a species is not always super clear. But then again, I don't study bacteria, so I might just be talking out of my ass and be totally (laughs) wrong. No, well, I'm not going to correct you. So <laughs> as I obviously don't know, um, we are reaching the end of our time. So there's just a couple more things I wanted to ask you about and get your thoughts on. Um, I want to know what are your plans? I know it's like such a hard question to answer, but um, do you have a desire to get like a, a doctorate degree or do you think that um, when you complete your current master, is it master's? Yes. Um, you complete your master's. Like what is it that with the research and the experience you have that you want to do or that you could do with what you're doing now? So I think the most appealing thing for me would be to work in the nonprofit sector and continue mm-hmm. to do public education, science outreach, stuff like that. I can't say I have the most interest in going into academia. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're a potential advisor that I've talked to about academia, you can't hear me and I'm not saying this. Um, yeah, you're but, not allowed. Turn yeah, around. Turn I off. I haven't written it off completely because in a perfect world, I would love to get a PhD. I love research. I love being out in the field. I love being able to contribute to the body of knowledge on these important topics, Mm -hmm. but there's just so much going on in academia that's hostile to women, to, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) just people in general. I can't even just say women. It's a hostile sector. So I think so much of academia and success and happiness depends on 
where you end up at what institution mm -hmm. and what department and it's so hit or miss that it's hard to you know say i would love to do this for the rest of my life and move across the country with my family and commit to this thing that might just totally suck so i kind of am more interested in blazing my own trail if i can but we'll see mm -hmm. yeah and i think that's awesome and and i and you don't have to answer this if you don't want because I'll, I'll cut this out if you don't want to but do you ever experience a feeling and i i think i can I ask you this as, as a very high achieving woman and then also just someone who's excelled uh, very much so in her academics. Um, I know that when I graduated my undergrad, the next week I was looking at graduate schools. Um, I've since decided not to go to grad school yet. Um, but do you ever feel a pull towards getting a doctorate degree because you have a worry of like losing your identity as a student? So I know that sounds very strange, but I ask this because I graduated six months ago now, which is insane. And for so long, I had identified myself as a student and identified myself for what I was studying and what I was doing like academically that suddenly you're kind of like done, you know? And, and I think there was a big push for myself and then a lot of my friends to immediately throw ourselves into grad school or go towards getting our doctorates because of that fear of, of the, the newness. So I had a very similar experience where I was super academically inclined all through K through 12 college mm -hmm. and I graduated and I immediately went to work in fisheries on the West coast. And I went there totally by myself to this really small town in the middle of nowhere on boats, mm -hmm. you know, for weeks at a time and sort of had like a bit of an identity crisis actually, yeah. where I was just <laughs> like, all right, I'm in the middle of the fucking Pacific ocean. I've got like a safety suit like clutched to my chest in 40 foot waves i'm like am i gonna die today like maybe i don't know <laughs> anyway so i did a lot of thinking out there and um ended up working a couple of jobs in the next few years i took three years between undergrad and starting grad school i'm 26 mm -hmm. now and i was like a manager for like a pet care company i drove a fucking mule in the french quarter of new orleans Just, like there was <laughs> that I know dead ass. I drove a mule. Um, that's a whole other can of worms um, <laughs> with a whole other subset of, you know, ethical questions behind it. But anyway, <laughs> different topic for a different podcast. Um, yeah. Wow. I'm yeah, like, okay, so, write that down for next yeah. time. <laughs> so I did all these sorts of different jobs and the common thread between them was that I found that every time I switched what I was doing, I, I had this tendency to be like, all right, well, how am I going to define myself? How am I going to shape myself around this? And I was like, you can't. Mm -hmm. You'll make yourself unhappy. You know, you have to find things that are totally independent of what is paying you to be excited about and happy about. And that's sort of why I do just like stupid, like frog shit posting. That's what it makes me happy, you know, <laughs> like going out in the woods, finding a frog, like nobody's paying me to do that. I'm just like, I just feel like seeing a frog today. I'm going to go to the park and fuck around and I'll have fun. And that's something that's consistent that I can make me without having anybody else tied to it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. As I think it's, sorry, I got like all therapisty on you. Oh, I was no, just thinking no. about it. Cause it really makes you think, you know, it does. Well, and I think there's, I've seen discourse more recently, um, on Twitter, obviously, cause that's where I get like most of my science community and science communication info, um, of that people, there's almost two camps of it right now is it's people who are in undergraduate school feeling forced to go into graduate school um, because like that's the next step and that's what they have to do. But then there's also this other camp of graduate students in general, and I don't want to say all, 
but have a tendency to, from what I've seen, be very negative and talk mm-hmm. about how hard it is, which almost makes people who were like, oh, I don't, didn't feel forced to go to grad school, but I wanted to. And now I feel like I can't mm-hmm. because it's going to be too hard. Um, so I was just curious kind of where you fell within that spectrum. <laughs> So I have an interesting anecdote about that. I was so excited for grad school because I had been mm-hmm. through the string of jobs where I was like, all right, this all sucks. This, this just sucks. I'm so excited to be back in school, you know, find the thing that I was good at and I was happy to do. Mm-hmm. And I get there and I'm sitting at this desk and the person who had the desk before me had put up this comic like on the back of it that mm-hmm. was just like from like the PhD comics website or something. And it was just like this horribly depressing little timeline of just like high school student, I'm going to research whatever I want. And then associate grad student, I'm going to research whatever my professor wants. Associate professor, I'm going to research whatever my tenure committee wants. And all the Mm -hmm. way all along to emeritus professor, I'm going to research whatever I, and it's just fucking dead. And I'm just like, okay, (laughs) maybe I won't get a PhD. (laughs) Like this is horribly Mm -hmm. bleak. So I think that there's a fine line between being honest with prospective students about challenges they might face and equally supplementing that with here are the resources that you can access if you are facing these challenges mm-hmm. and just being like horribly negative and depressing and like turning people off where they might not need to be. Mm-hmm. So honesty is important. Negativity isn't always. But again, I think that it's important to, if you're considering grad school, talk to people who fall into similar categories as you do. And sort of a clumsy way of just saying, if you want to be a woman in herpetology, you should talk to other women in herpetology, especially ones who are at the school you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Because experiences can vary so dramatically depending on who's your advisor, you know, what's your school. So right, right. it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. And I think that ties into my last question very well, which is um, if you were approached by a young woman who was interested in getting into biology or becoming a biologist or, or studying herps, what advice would you give to her? My advice would be probably to give yourself as broad of a background as you can. I think that a lot of people, probably the most common question I get from younger people who are interested in a college career in herpetology is where can I go as a herpetology major? Where can I go to study herpetology? And the better Mm -hmm. answer is not many schools have that and there's a reason for it. It's because you want to be trained as an ecologist, as an evolutionary biologist. Mm -hmm. So you can say, I'm going to answer this ecological or this evolutionary question using a reptile as a study species. So herpetology in and of itself is more just like, I am an evolutionary biologist who studies reptiles. I am an ecologist who studies reptiles. Mm-hmm. Unless you're like a taxonomist who only works with herbs, then you're just a herpetologist, you know, but <laughs> that, that's pure herpetology, but it's not very common. Um, it's not what I'm particularly interested in. It's great for some people, but in a nutshell, get as much experience with as many different broad fields as you can, because you'll be better equipped to answer the specific questions you're interested in with regards to herps if you have that sort of background to draw upon than if you go in with a laser focus, bleh, laser focus on, I want to study snakes. I want to study lizards. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Gina. Um, it's been such a pleasure to get to speak with you and learn more about what you study and what you do. Um, I'm so grateful. This is like so much fun for me. <laughs> oh my God, me too. I had such a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to get in touch or learn more about what you do, where can they find you? So I mostly use Twitter. My handle is Gina goes outside, but you can also contact me by email, gina.zwicky at gmail.com. If you have a question that you want to ask privately, you can DM me on Twitter. It should be public. 
feel free. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'm pretty accessible and I really like talking to people. So if you have any mm-hmm. questions, especially if you're a younger person who wants to learn more about the, the pipeline of getting into this sort of field, I'm happy to talk. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include that in the comments um, of this episode. And once again, thank you to everyone who is listening. You can follow me, Dominique DeFalco at DeFalco Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow the podcast Modern Medusa Podcast on Instagram. And please take a look at our uh, Patreon helps me a lot be able to afford to get new equipment and to use our streaming services and all those other little costs that come up. And then you can also get discounts on all of our merchandise and exclusive insights on our upcoming guests and recommendations and all that fun stuff. So once again, this is the Modern Medusa podcast. Gina, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope everyone has a great night. We'll talk at you next week. Thanks for listening.